0: Humans depend on oxygen, water, food, on the sun being shielded by the atmosphere. Most bodies, whether human or not, are intricate apparatus designed to function in specific environments. We rely on certain viable conditions to survive on Earth, but what happens when these conditions start to change? Will we have to redesign our body in order to exist as a species? Welcome to the third episode of the Broken Nature podcast series. I'm Paola Antonelli, and today we will look at one of the most complex systems in our life, definitely the most intimate, our own body. The melting of the ice caps, extended droughts, the proliferation of wildfires are just some of the noticeable effects of the climate crisis. In order to understand how these changes affect our own physiology, we spoke with Dr. Sarah Henderson. Scientific Director of Environmental Health Services at the British Columbia Centre for Disease Control in Canada. Dr. Henderson's research, focused on wildfires in the Pacific Northwest, helps us understand the extreme effects on the human body caused by extreme environments, which are becoming dangerously normal on our planet. What is an extreme environment?
1: I would define an extreme environment as one in which we have to take particular precautions to live safely. I think humans have been living in extreme environments for a very long time, um, but it takes a lot of thought and care and planning to be able to live in them comfortably And safely. So the baseline is what you're used to. And so, you know, the baseline, if you're an Inuit community in the north, is that environment. The baseline, if you live in the greater Vancouver area, is that environment. And anything that deviates from that baseline too much becomes extreme for that population where it would be normal for another population environmentally, there's always been places where humans can't live very successfully in the middle of deserts where there's no water. Um, But the changing climate, for me, the first kind of hallmark of some of places becoming potentially like that is those that are experiencing prolonged drought and prolonged temperatures that are just beyond what the human body can handle. Anybody who's paying attention will know that we've had extreme and record-breaking wildfire seasons year upon year for about the past decade. That's partially due to historic land management practices. We don't like wildfire on the landscape, um, and they are a threat to human assets and uh, things that humans want. So there was this policy of wildfire exclusion in Western North America for a long time. But the problem with that is it's a landscape that is naturally flammable and would naturally burn um, if humans weren't around on a fairly regular schedule. And that's sort of led to a buildup of fuels on the landscape that makes these fires more dangerous when they occur. At the same time, that buildup of fuels is sort of tragically coincident with a change in climate. Greater drought conditions, hotter, drier, windier days, all of the things that wildfire really loves.
0: How do wildfires affect the human body?
1: Smoke affects everything. (laughs) I think it's really easy for people to understand that, you know, smoke would affect your lungs because you're breathing it into your lungs, but it's actually a whole body exposure. When you inhale the smoke, what happens is really an immunological response. So, Your body interprets the smoke as some type of foreign invader, the same way it would interpret a bacterium or a virus. And it sends out an immunological response to try to kill that smoke and to try to get it out of your body. Um, The smoke can't be killed. It's not a biological agent, though we are learning that there's, you know, there is an aerobiology (laughs) associated with smoke exposures. Um, and what happens is this systemic inflammation is created because of that immunological response. And it affects every organ system there is in your body. So the respiratory response to smoke is very clear. In the research that's been done, but now we're talking about the mental health effects, potential increases in suicidality on these smoky days, the cognitive health effects. to children perform as well in school when it's smoky as when it's not smoky? It's just, yeah, you just have to think of it as a whole body impact. You know, more extreme conditions are something that we're going to have to live with. I think the indoor environment is probably the technological solution that we're looking to. Most people spend 95% of their time inside. That's just a sad truth of uh, the current human condition, especially in high-income countries. So if we can build the built environment in such a way that we can maintain good air quality, we can maintain comfortable temperatures, we can maintain protection from flooding um, and extreme rainfall, then we've kind of built a a bubble around ourselves to protect ourselves from these extremes. The the flip side of that is that when that fails, (laughs) if and when those environments fail, which they inevitably will, we may be even less resilient and less competent and less capable of um, protecting ourselves from, from the outdoor environment if we become too reliant on these, on these indoor conditions.
0: There's no question that humans have caused dramatic and often irreversible changes to the environment that will alter the way we will live for the rest of our time on Earth. More and more regions are turning into what could be considered extreme environments, and these new conditions will also determine where our species can survive and even if and for how long. Scientists like geneticist Christopher Mason are turning to other species to explore how we might guarantee human survival on Earth and eventually on other planets. Dr. Mason is Associate Professor of Physiology and Biophysics at Cornell University and Principal Investigator at Mason Lab.
2: We have a laboratory that studies the genetics and epigenetics, or how you control genetics in all kinds of different environments. This includes humans when they get sick, this includes microbes when they're uh, making people sick, or microbes in strange places like subways and space stations.
0: We would like to discuss with you one particular field of your research that kind of sums them all up. Can you tell us about your 500-year plan for the survival of the human species, please?
2: Very happy to. So I, I penned this about 10 years ago when I first started the lab as really built on uh, an ethical framework. I wanted to start from really why should we preserve life, uh, humanity included, but really all of life, and how could we do it over the next really 500 years. It's actually one of the really key features of humans is that we have an innate capacity to make these long-term plans. that are hundreds of years or decades. And we also have another really key feature that, that humans alone have, as far as we know, Which is this awareness of extinction we we are the only ones that understand what that means we're the only ones aware of this extinction that means it's incumbent upon us and it's our duty to be shepherds of life or the guardians of life Uh, and i argue in the next 500 years we will learn enough about the human genome and and microbial biology and general genetics that we can uh, basically begin to think about sending humans to mars and keeping them there safely and even potentially adapting ourselves to these new environments because we, might, we clearly have evolved on Earth. We're not really prepared for Mars or Titan or other planets uh, or moons, but we know from therapeutic methods we use in the hospital today, we can slightly tweak the immune system. We can slightly modify uh, genetic features so you can improve resistance to radiation or survival in many contexts. So we wanna take all the lessons from all the organisms that have ever lived and apply them to our future plans. It's in our abilities, it's in our capacity. We can, the question is just, will we? I mean, you could even argue that most of climate change is less of a technical challenge than it is a political one, right? You know, think how terrifying climate change would be if we had no idea why it was changing, right? We know exactly what to do. We even know how to do it. It's just a question of political will and structural uh, changes to our, our societies. And so if we do nothing, eventually we will run out of time. So all, all moral questions are crystal clear if you look out to one billion year timeframes. That means at that point, uh, anything we do for controlling the climate uh, is, is irrelevant because then it'll get too hot here because the sun starts to get too big, right? So, uh, But that means from now until then, we have to maintain the Earth as best we can. I never wanted anything anything to be perceived as a plan B. I think you know, plan A is we're here and that that persists hopefully for about a billion years because eventually it'll start to get just too hot to survive. It's the only home we've ever known, but it's the best one. And it probably will stay the best one for the foreseeable future, unless we have massively modified mammals that we send off to other planets. And then eventually those species will adapt to those new places. But for now, I'm a big fan of Earth. I like, you know, there's a lot to do here. There's a lot of wonderful places, a lot of great, great whiskeys and beers. There's things you can do in the evening. So uh, that will hopefully won't change for at least a billion years.
0: Let's think for a moment uh, of a 50 or 75 year plan for Earth.
2: A lot of the lessons that we've learned during the pandemic is that we have a better understanding of the immune system, and we can actually, in in many new ways that we've never been able to do before, control the function of our T cells, or even of our immune system, and how B cells help control what antibodies are made for our body. So I think the simplest example is just the RNA-based vaccines that many that now you know tens of millions of people have just been injected with. They are you know massively modified pieces of RNA. They're not just like an RNA that's in your body, and you take it from the virus and you throw it in your body. It has to be perfectly engineered so that it elicits an immune response, but not completely destroys it before it can actually create the B cells to to learn about essentially what is this virus, what is this small protein, and then learn about it to make antibodies. In the next 50 to 75 years, a lot more ways in which we not just learn about how to prime the immune system, but also to control it. So for, you know, I like think of like autoimmune diseases are often an overactive immune system, but we can now really, we can quite literally take T cells out of a person, reprogram them much like you would a, a program of a computer, put them back into the patient and most of it's for cancer therapy, but you can do the same thing for other therapies. So I think there'll be fits and starts. There'll be, you know, clinical trials, some that do well, some that don't do as well, but we'll learn about how to modify our cells and our microbial uh, breath in as well. And I think that will be, that will help us survive longer here
0: I know that you work with a lot of either bona fide designers or design-friendly scientists and thinkers. What kind of resources do you find in design that can help you in your research?
2: Cultural creation, when it's free, is almost unbounded. When you can appropriate from other cultures, other ideas, and synthesize new, uh, new sort of new ideas, new biology in the case of, 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 of genetic sequences. So. Uh, this has been happening culturally, you know, since the dawn of humanity. It's this mixing and matching and, and cross-cultural fertilization and inspiration, and and biologically, I think it's just starting. And, you know, to designers, it's it's not at all uh, an alien concept to say I want to take uh, various disparate fragments and blend them together or come up with a new uh, design. I think the a lot of people believe that this century will be the century of biological design, and that just as you think of a, a you know paper or you think of a structure or a sculpture as a as a substrate for design. Uh, in this century, biology will be eventually the most common substrate for design.
1: What
0: kind of modification do you think we should make to human physiology in order to survive the next 50 to 75 years?
2: In a worst case scenario on Earth, what we can do are, are we can actually look to our ancestral genetic past and we can reactivate genes that are in us but dormant. So for example, vitamin C, we have to get from our diet or you get scurvy, but really, this is a recent evolutionary accident. We have all dry noses, but if you look at other primates with wet noses, they all still make their own vitamin C. With a gene in their genome that we still have, it's just ours has been uh, turned off. It's called a pseudogene. It's no longer functional. With a slight tweak, we could make it so we make our own vitamin C. We also don't make all of our own amino acids. We're kind of sad that way. You know, It's kind of what I call this molecular ineptitude, but that we know there's biochemical pathways that we could integrate into the human genome. So we've become more self-reliant in terms of making all of our own amino acids like many bacteria do. I would love it if we can, you know, basically reconstitute ancestral features that give us a more self-reliance and let us uh, survive better. That's great.
0: Can we talk for a moment about the ethical implications that derive from gene editing?
2: Editing genes comes with great risk, but also great promise and, and also modifying them. Even epigenetic modifications all carry great risk. but I think is worth it because one will probably need some version of that uh, you know, to survive long-term. I think that the uh, editing will be required to either track or defend against invasive species or risk of, uh, of calamity for ourselves that maybe we'll need it to survive in hotter, or more difficult climates. But also it's one of the best ways you can learn about the biology at the same time. So assuming you do it safely and reasonably and responsibly, it's a way to survive and it's a way to um, you know, really learn about the biology. I think, you know, genetic engineers will become you to some of the best, um, you know, genome biologists. You could to see, well, what, what do we really need? What can we change? What can't we change? Uh, and, and this, um, you know, carries great risk because you could do some, something wrong and you could um, accidentally take an invasive species and make it worse. Or you could take what you think is a normal therapeutic and, and then kill someone. Or this is often the beginning of the zombie apocalypse movie as well. You
0: now I know you already have your hands full with human beings, but what about other species? Have you ever thought of including in this gigantic liberty and freedom omnicomprehensive also other species?
2: Absolutely. I I, I think um and there that's part of the, the shepherdness of humans. Uh, we have to carry them and you know, safeguard them and actually um, protect species. So uh, the challenge there is they have no choice, right? So it's it's much like, um, you know, applying a therapeutic to someone who didn't get to pick. Uh, there, there is a a large responsibility and a, a key ethical choice. You have to make sure that you there was no other choice, that this is what you, as far as you know today, the best choice, which may be proven wrong 50 years from now. So I mean, a lot of medical choices that were the best choice 50 or 100 years ago are, are laughable today, right? But, but at the time, it's what people knew. And so I think uh, we have to know that the, the rearview mirror of history may not look kindly on everything we do, but you know, for other species, if we think we have something that can preserve them or save them, uh, we should deploy it. And, and sometimes the, the best thing to do is to do nothing. If they're in a nice ecosystem and they're fine, you should leave them alone for at least a billion years. And After that, then we'll have to do something.
0: The irresistible water bear. So what can we learn from tardigrades and their physiology that can help us understand kind of changes that would need to be made to human physiology to withstand extreme environments, whether space or the worst we can do on Earth?
2: They are extraordinary creatures. And some people think they're cute. Some people think they're scary. Uh, They're just, but I think they're kind of like cute little water bears. And, and they are multicellular organisms. They're small little kind of creatures that walk. They're microscopic, but they're found all over the world. If you dry them out and put them into the vacuum of space and then add some water back in, they can hop up again and start walking around. They can survive radiation. They can survive complete desiccation or drying out, in a sense that, you know, that complete vacuums. They, they're pretty extraordinary. So looking through their, their genome, there was a, a gene that we've been deploying in human cells called DSUP. And this is a gene. What's interesting is it, it didn't only come on in response to radiation. It's something that's actually fairly consistently active uh, in those, uh, you know, in those animals. So we think it actually does a decent job of actually protecting the DNA from damage, uh, as well as giving some baseline additional repair capacity. So it's kind of like taking your cells and say, I'm going to give you an extra uh, mechanic to go into your cells and keep an eye on things. Uh, except we've got this mechanic from a from a water bear. And so, uh, again, and I don't think we have to put this yet in astronauts or humans It'll be 10 to 20 years of basic research before I'd, I'd be comfortable trying to do it therapeutically uh, or maybe less if things go well. But, you know, it, just even studying it, understanding, you know, what this alien gene is doing in a human cell helps us understand both systems. Right. So it also helps us give us new features to human cells. So uh, we we do like our, our little water bears very much. So. The great hubris that comes with it, but the control of biology and ecosystems and the innate guardianship and awareness of extinction and, and acting on that duty is probably the most human thing that we could do, actually evolution for all of its history has been uh, unguided and accidental, and for the first time we can maybe make it a little bit uh, more ethical evolution, if you will, or at least a little bit more uh, rational, and hopefully uh, more effective.
0: What are the implications of altering our genetic makeup in order to assure our survival? Should a species have that much power over its own fate and the fate of the world? And would redesigning our physiology turn us into something other than human? Indeed, space can give us answers, but not necessarily solutions. We spoke with Dr. Natalie Cabral, director of SETI Institute, Carl Sagan Center for Research. As an astrobiologist, she investigates the adaptation of biological life to extreme environments and its relevance to planetary exploration.
3: The scientist um, in me uh, is searching for life uh, beyond Earth. I, I look at uh, habitability of planetary environment and because I cannot go necessarily every weekend to Mars and come back with uh, uh, notes, uh, I do the best I can with proxies, which is to go to uh, terrestrial extreme environments, which are providing me with a, a number of uh, 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 responses to the questions that I am asking. What is an extremophile? An extremophile is a microorganism that's capable of living in conditions that we consider extreme to us. This is very relative. Uh, It can be an extremely acidic place or an extremely basic place. Uh, It can be very cold, very warm, very hot, Uh, uh, extreme radiation or under a kilometer of earth. Anything that we imagine that you wouldn't survive, life has demonstrated over and over again that it can survive on our planet. In fact, the issue we have on our own planet is that we have to find a place where life or a condition where life cannot survive. So my my take on this, uh, you know, uh, very quickly would be that uh, what these guys are trying to do is to force evolution. And uh, uh, so do we have to do this? Is it a better bet to force evolution or try to work with our planet <laughs> and let evolution do what it does? I understand the, the needs to uh, find ways around when you're talking about space. I, I am not sure that it is part of the solution um, to do this on the earth. It's kind of looking at the problem from the wrong direction or not necessarily the most urgent way of looking at the solution.
0: What do we have to do in order to fight that from your viewpoint since you studied? There are a
3: number of ways to do this, uh, and they are not, they are not, um, exclusive of each other. The first one is to come back to equilibrium with our world uh, and find, finally find our place back into the ecosystem because this is what we've messed up. We are interacting with our planet at this point in time like extraterrestrial species visiting the earth. We are dealing with our planet through technology, through artifacts and through artifices uh, instead of interacting with it in balance. The way of coming back into balance, and there, there are a number of ways of doing this. The brute force way is to play the apprentice sorcerers, which we are doing now, and which is basically the way those guys want to go, uh, which is to engineer, geo-engineer the earth and bioengineer humanity. So you can force your way through this. That depends on the kind of environment you want to live in. Then you can say, we go back to a more natural way of doing things. But for that, there is a price to be paid by the human species. But we have to cut our numbers by at least half. We can achieve exactly what we want in the same things because the technology is here now by being half of of us. That doesn't mean that we need to kill people for that. But if we don't do this, nature is taking care of this right now. It's creating new diseases. It's not for nothing that mother nature is coming up with new diseases. And then um, of course there is the interplanetary species. And and for that uh, it might be necessary to bioengineer or uh, humans just because we are not designed to live in space. What kind of ameliorations or
0: changes, adaptations, are necessary for humans to live in space?
3: It's really medical. It's not only your bones, because again, there is no gravity pulling. Well, there is gravity, but it's not pulling on you the same way as uh, on Earth. So your, your bones are starting to decay. Um, your muscles are uh, starting to, uh, uh, to shrink. Uh, you have all sorts of uh, cardiovascular problems uh, going on. It's not necessarily very healthy to have all of your blood in your head or at least in the upper part of your body. Um, uh, you, can, you can work those things out by doing a lot of exercise, which they are doing. But something there is little they can do about is the amount of radiation that they are receiving. Um, obviously, uh, issues with sight. Uh, they are developing eye problems, all of them. Uh, and so on and so forth so there are again a number of ways of going about this the first one is you bioengineer humans you find a way to modify them it can be a genetical makeup that's uh, uh, being uh, worked on or it can be hardware finding you know some sort of a armor of some kind I, I don't know I'm not designing these things I'm not thinking about those things but this is practical things I'm thinking about. And uh, can you find
0: on Earth environments that are as extreme as some that you hypothesize
3: you might find in space? So for me, uh, I've looked at extreme environments, um, especially from the standpoint of Mars. So uh, the first point is that there is no perfect terrestrial analog to any of the planetary environments that we are uh, uh, visiting or we will be visiting. On the other hand, Mars and the earth were close enough at the very beginning of their history and some regions of earth right now are fairly close still to the equatorial region of Mars that um, we definitely by studying those terrestrial analog can learn a lot about early Mars. And to me, that matters because early Mars is when I am, uh, um, you know, uh, I can see the conditions were suitable for life as we know it. But I have a greater interest even in the questions of life in the universe and especially on the nature
0: of life. It's a question that I had in my mind. I was thinking then there's life on all planets, but maybe it's not the kind of life that is suitable for us that matches our capability of living in that kind
3: of environment. To go back to your questions about geoengineering, bioengineering, I think that this is really trying to force our way through when there is a more beautiful, elegant, natural way of going after those questions. And I'm not saying we shouldn't go to Mars or do all of those things, but we do this uh, we should do this as a respectful species and one that has understood that there might be other ways. And, you know, uh, it's uh, um, I think that astrobiology uh, is on the threshold and exploration is on the threshold of a paradigm shift. So
0: the original question at this point, after this conversation is almost moot because the original question is how do our bodies and our physiology need to change in order to adapt to the extreme environments caused by climate change? My question now is, should they, you know, should we even try or or are we looking at
3: the problem from the wrong side? Humans are evolving very, very fast. When you are looking at that, especially maybe we also have now the possibility of observing that evolution that we didn't have before. Uh, but let's say that we are seeing more and more babies being born without wisdom teeth, right? After a few generations of pulling wisdom teeth out, Mother Nessar say, okay, <laughs> we don't need that, that's an aggravation uh, and, and let's get rid of that. The, evolution's working pretty fast. I don't know of any studies and maybe it's too early to actually start to look at whether we can see already signs of evolution in our species as a response to climate change. Because climate is so different in so many different places of the planet. That uh, it might be difficult to see that from the background noise of what we already have. The marker of this change is the rise in temperature, though. For me, I would say let's work as much as we can, try and fix our impact on the environment. And, you know, as we go and see the progress that we are making. On this, figure out ways of counteracting whatever aftermath is left. It may be that we can do a pretty good job, and that if that's the case, and we react now and become adult now, uh, there will still be uh, consequences. It's too late for not having any consequences to that. But uh, let's say that we manage that. And within a few generations, we are back to some sort of an equilibrium. If on the other hand, we don't change anything and uh, we, we continue you know, to act like the freight train, um, then the environment is going to continue to have this feedback until we understand or we disappear. We can live in a geo-engineered, bio-engineered world do we really want this? That's the point, you know? Some of our fellow human beings don't seem to mind. In fact, they are sort of going ahead of the crisis, making a lot of noise about this as if it was the only solution we have. Becoming some sort of droid, half machine, half human, or uh, going to Mars or to other planets as the only solution to save our species. It's not the only one. The responsibility is here for us on our planet. We are not going to Mars to solve all of the, miser- of the misery of planet Earth. That's not true. That's not right. If we live with that state of mind, then we will just continue pursue the same mistakes wherever we go we will be remembered as the apprentice sorcerer, uh, uh, the generation that is both blessed and cursed. Cursed because it came to a point where it had all these toys and was just doing like a teenage civilization, half enough brain to get themselves in trouble, big trouble because now you are dealing with survival life and the biosphere, right? But at the same time, this generation that for the first time not only could see the universe around in the sky at night, but is ready to touch it. And when I say touch it, I mean every single word of it.
0: As a species that is aware of its own eventual extinction, and that is also responsible for permanently altering the planet's composition, What is our duty? Would it be better for Earth if evolution ran its course and humans disappeared? And does our responsibility for the care of other species and environments extend to other planets? Our awareness of our vanishing can be both a blessing and a curse. Some of our guests propose we harness this existential knowledge and the development of new technologies to assure our future survival and that of other species, whether on Earth or on Mars. Others propose instead that we learn from the past and focus on repairing the disproportionate amount of power that we have exerted over the rest of nature. Unlike the systems explored in the previous episodes of this series, the human body does not require systemic redesign for more equitable infrastructures to develop. Like those of other animals and plants, human bodies have been optimally engineered to thrive on Earth. And our most important duty going forward is to care for the environment that is most suited not only for our survival, but for that of all species. Thank you for listening to the MoMA Magazine podcast. Thanks to our guests Sarah, Christopher, and Nathalie for sharing their time and knowledge with us. For more information about their work in this episode, check out moMA.org forward slash magazine. The Broken Nature podcast series is hosted by me, Paola Antonelli, and produced by Isabel Custodio, with research and writing by Anna Burkhardt and assistance from Alex Alberstadt, Prudence Pfeiffer, and Leah Dickerman. Thank you to Allianz, MoMA's partner for design and innovation. Tune in next week for the next episode in the Broken Nature series.